from News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. California has a long and complicated political history when it comes to water, and the impact of climate change is likely to only intensify the political battles. One person who's been witnessing California's political battles over water is our guest, Dan Walters, who's had a front row seat to California's water wars for over 50 years. We'll talk to him about how that battle has changed over the years and where he sees it going. We'll then talk to Ellen Hannock with the Water Policy Center at the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California about the uncharted waters we face as we begin to deal with the effects of climate change and her ideas on how we can address California's water demands in a way that is economically viable, environmentally sustainable, and socially equitable. Those conversations in a moment. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc., students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. You've probably heard the saying, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting. Some, perhaps erroneously, attribute that saying to Mark Twain. But according to our guest, Dan Walters, the longtime political columnist, quote, whatever its source, it accurately describes California's decades-long conflicts over this existential liquid. Um, after a lifetime of observing California politics and water politics in particular, we're trying to get, we'd like to get his perspective on where we've been and where we're going on this very controversial issue, and particularly California's perpetual water wars. Welcome back to the Matter Report, Dan. Thank you very much, Mark. So um, when were you first introduced to the water wars? Well, I was the uh, editor of the paper in Hanford, uh, not exactly a suburb of Fresno, but close to Fresno back in the 1960s, and I first became aware of this thing called water. I mean, you know, water in the biggest sense. And in that particular uh, county, Kings County, there was a conflict between the small farmers in the north part of the county, mostly orchardists, and the big, huge corporate farms in the south part of the county over rights to the Kings River, water on the Kings River. And the small farmers were afraid that the big farmers were going were to buy up all the water rights on the Kings River and, and leave them high and dry. So they actually formed a county agency to buy up water rights to keep them from going to the South, South County. And it, it was kind of yeah, an introduction to the idea that water, how important water is, particularly in the agricultural community, uh, water is money, water is life. And business life and personal life and you know that was my introduction but it's nothing's happened to change all that uh, ever since we're still fighting over it yeah, i was going to ask you about yeah, i was going to ask you about the combatants you know in in water you know ag environmentalists urban i mean does, does anyone have more power than the other uh 
Yes, in a sense that the urban uses, in other words, the drinking water that people, that would always have first priority if you start divvying up water. But that's not very much water, truthfully. It's really a pretty small part of the water picture in California. The biggest chunks of water are either consumed by agriculture or flow down the rivers and streams into the ocean. Those are the big chunks. The water that's used by human beings for watering lawns, drinking water, taking bath showers, all the sort, everything for that is a, it's a pretty small, it's about on an average year, about 5% of the water that actually falls on California is snow or rain. So it's not a big thing. The big battle over water is really how much goes to the agriculture and how much goes to the natural environment. Has have the political power shifted over time as California's population has grown? Has it shifted away from agriculture and tur- toward uh, urban uses or, or domestic uses? Well, not necessarily to urban uses or domestic uses, but there has been a, a shift between agriculture and environment, starting with the when the environmental movement really got started in the 1970s. Uh, that was one of the, the fronts on the movement was how waters divvied up between agriculture and uh, habitat. It's called habitat. In other words, water in the rivers and in the delta that support fish life and, and so forth. And that has been the essential battle that's been going on now for about, oh, half a century or so, I would say. Yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, in a typical year, you know, we've got good years and bad years, dry years and, and, and wetter years. Is there enough water in California to satisfy all the demands on water, whether it's agriculture or the environment or urban centers? Uh, is there a political consensus that there's enough water in California to satisfy all those needs? No, there's not. Uh, there's enough water to take care of the, the so-called human use. There's not enough water to meet the demands of agriculture and the uh, environmental water, let's call it. And so, no, and that's that's the battle. That's 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 the almost the entire battle is that how much water is going to go downstream and how much water is going to be pumped out of the uh, rivers and whatnot to uh, or captured in, in reservoirs and pumped out of the rivers for agricultural purposes. Yeah, it's one of the interesting. The PPIC noted recently that annual water supplies could decline by as much as twenty percent by twenty forty. And they're talking about something like you know three point two million acre feet which is the amount, the size of the Oro, Oroville Dam uh, that we could loo- lose uh, just because of climate change and, and the rest of it. Yeah, and that's what's going on. If the, under the best of circumstances, apparently, I mean, you know, this is all speculation, of course. Under the best of circumstances, California will not see less precipitation than it's gotten, but its precipitation will be more erratic year to year and probably more in the form of rain and less in the form of snow which means that the natural reservoir of the snowpack in the, in the Sierra will probably decline over time because we, we would need not as much snow, but maybe more rain. That's under the best of circumstances. The worst of circumstances is there would be, a, as noted, a, a overall decline in the amount of pre- precipitation into California uh, in total. Now, given that you know, I want, I want, I want to, you know what, I want to, I want to talk about that in a second. Um, we're running up against a, a clock here on, on this particular segment, but I do want to talk about that, and particularly this perpetual water crisis. What's the problem here? Is it a lack of vision? Is it a lack of political will? Is it unwillingness to compromise? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report.
The Maddie Daily e-newsletter provides you with a quick, comprehensive, and up-to-date look at what's happening in Valley politics, as well as what's happening in Sacramento and Washington, D.C. that impacts the Valley. Be more informed about what's happening in your community and your Valley. Sign up for the Maddie Daily e-newsletter at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. If my numbers are correct, our guest has written over 10,000 columns on California politics. We're talking with Dan Walters, a columnist with Cal Matters and longtime observer of state politics generally and water issues in particular. So you've written that, quote, California's current water uh, supply system, or more accurately, it's dozens of uh, federal, state, and local systems, dates back to the early decades of the 20th century when the state was emerging from the front, its frontier status into an agricultural and later industrial powerhouse. Can you give us a quick history lesson? Yeah, well, the, the early pioneers to California were mostly farmers. You know, well, there were the gold miners, of course, but that was a whole different thing. But the, the, the California was settled basically by farmers. And they just used the water that they found in the rivers and whatnot, or or uh, cultivated dry dry crops. Uh, wheat was the was the crop of choice by the, in the nineteenth uh, century. But by and by, as the as the state grew and everything, there had to be kind of some organization to it. And in nineteen fifteen, the state started really trying to regulate water and water rights. And so one of the cardinal uh, factors in water in California today are water rights. Those that pre predate 20, uh, 1915 and those that come after 1915. And then, of course, those who don't have any water rights at all. And the, the summation of who gets water and who doesn't get water depends a lot on those rights, not only on the amount of water that's available, but who gets who's at the top of the list when they get it? That has to do with water rights because they're done chronologically, uh, and there is a some resistance to that. There's a lot of resistance now to the idea of why should we follow what happened in the 19th century or the early 20th century as to who got water because this is the 21st century and we need to do the whole thing over again. And that's a very that's where the rubber hits the road in water in California when you yeah. start dealing with water rights. Yeah. Um, by the way, just a little footnote. Uh, uh, I think it was Clovis Cole, uh, the city of Clovis was named after, was the wheat king of California back in the day, 100 years ago, apparently. Um, you know, a, a big part of, of California's water uh, system and infrastructure is created by, by Pat Brown's state water plan in the 50s and 60s. But you've written that, quote, it's fair to say that almost every river in the state and some streams too small to be called rivers have been dammed uh, for local or distant use, unquote. Indeed, the, the biggest regional dam, I think, was built back in like 1980. Uh, but you regularly hear about, you know, oh, we're going to build a new dam, you know, the Sites Reservoir or Temperance Flat. Is building a new dam a pipe dream? No, I think that it's the, the Sites Reservoir, at least, is, a, is an active project. It's been on kind of in the works for about 40 years. But there seems to be picking up a lot of steam in recent years. Uh, some money has been appropriated. And the important thing about Sites Reservoir is it's an off-stream reservoir up on the west side of the Sacramento Valley. In other words, it doesn't dam a river; it just sits out there in the middle of nowhere. And then when well, the that's supposed that's supposed to have less environmental impact, is that it? Well, it has a tremendously less environment because you're not talking about migrating fish or anything like that. You're just talking about water. Very similar to the San Luis uh, project up in the up in the hills. Uh, west of uh, Merced. It's an off-stream reservoir that you pump water into it when it's available and you put water out of it when you need it. And that, that reservoir is, is gaining a lot of traction. I don't think there's 
I don't think there's really any real major on-river projects that have a chance of making it anymore. But off-stream reservoirs, yeah, that's a possibility. Just to, just to give you an idea, um, I was doing some reading on this, and they're saying that that sites would bring on 1.5 million acre feet, and we can talk about what acre feet is, but acre feet of water by coming on on stream, as it were, online. Um, the state currently has 50 million acre feet per water, so about about three percent increase in in water capture if you bring in, bring sites online. Um, I want to ask you, since building dams and reservoirs has been a bit of a challenge, it's been very politically challenging. Is that why we're hearing so much about the Delta conveyance projects over the years? Well, the Delta Conveyance Project, what, what, whatever, it gets changed. It's, its name changes every few years, but now called the Delta Conveyance, which would be a pipeline underneath Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. The, the Delta, you have to understand, is the, the hinge point of the entire water uh, controversy. It has to do with the Delta. That's where the Sacramento and the San Joaquin Rivers come together. Of course, all the tributaries to those two rivers forming this estuary uh, between the San Joaquin Valley, uh, Sacramento, and the, and the Bay. And the water flows through the Delta into the Bay. And the real controversy is how much water can you take out of those tributaries or out of the Delta itself? Because the state water project and, the federal, and one of the federal projects takes water right out of the bottom of the Delta near Tracy and ships it down south, down, down to the farmers, down to Southern California. And so the Delta is, is kind of the the place where the entire battle comes together. And the conveyance would essentially bypass the Delta for a good deal of the water coming down the Sacramento River. And so it's a it's a project that has been in the works. It's an, it, it just seems, it's another another one of those political battles. But up next we're gonna talk about another political battle. That's groundwater. That conversation a moment. This is the Maddie Report. The Maddie Institute has become one of the most active public policy institutes in California because of support of people like you. Because of that support, the Maddie Institute has been able to highlight San Joaquin Valley issues that are often overlooked by those in Sacramento and Washington. If you want the Valley to have a strong voice, and you believe in a fact-based, bipartisan, and problem-solving approach to politics and public policy, please consider joining us as a Maddie Associate. You can learn more at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Now, groundwater pumping is, of course, another major so source of water for California, but it's created some significant environmental challenges. In 2014, the legislature took the first steps to limiting the use of groundwater with the passage of the State Groundwater Management Act, or SIGMA, uh, that has had has the goal of creating groundwater sustainability by 2040. It has big implications, obviously, for valley agriculture. We're talking with Dan Walters, longtime political columnist uh, about water politics. So state's pretty reliant on groundwater. Um, what are some of, briefly, some of the adverse consequences of groundwater pumping? Well, groundwater supplies about a third of the water in California, and it's particularly important, as you say, to agriculture, because it's, it's kind of been a safety valve for agriculture. When the surface water has been unavailable during droughts, farmers have uh, pumped water out of the underground to keep their crops watered. But as you say, it's now going to be under regulation. So the it's going to the underground supply, I guess you'd say, is could be squeezed. Now, it's also possible to increase the under, underground supply by what's sinking water when it's available, but that's still a kind of a it hasn't really gelled yet. The important thing is that uh, the pumping out of the underground supplies, out of the aquifers, has resulted in what's called subsidence of the ground actually dropping falling, caving in on these aquifers, 
which by the way makes them less able to then be right. replenished. You're talking about the canals that are literally they're dropping. They're they're putting some money to repair some of these, but you're right, you're losing all the water because the canals are actually you no, know, it's the canals have been, but the land okay. itself has been subsiding. I mean the yeah. farmland itself well, well, well let me let me ask you this, Dan. Um the, the target is twenty forty. Is that um too much too soon or too little too late? It may be too little too late. The environmental groups are saying that they need to, to jack that up because very recently, just right now, pumps, farmers are pumping water out of that aquifer because they're they, at the moment it's not yet regulated. And the environmental groups say if you if you don't crack down soon, there's not going to be less water to pump. And uh, so there's well, the that side of that. Man, the, well, the flip side of that is, of course, farmers or ag will say, well, listen, if we can't do this pumping, we're going to have to fallow land. Um, so if they have to fallow their land, lose up, you know, 500,000 or more acres of active farmland, um, what's the state doing to to make sure that uh, the farmers are taken care of in that situation? Well, they're not doing anything at the moment. Uh, there are things kicking around in academia like, well, this farmland could become solar panel farms or something like that, but it's all theoretical at the moment. And it's it seems likely that land will be fallowed in high quantities of land will be fallowed not only because of the underground situation but because of, of reductions in surface water as well agriculture in california is undergoing a major evolution right now in terms of the crops that it can, can grow uh, in terms of how much land it can be watered uh, it's going to shift uh, land that's now uh, farms marginal crops, maybe like alfalfa, it's going to have to give way to the more high value crops like almonds and uh, grapes, because you can't let those almond and grape orchards go fallow. There's no such thing as fallowing them. They have to have water. Well, is that the other side of that equation? So we have to have more, you know, people say you have to have more row crops and less permanent crops like, like almonds. Um, even the row crops don't bring the return on investment that almonds do. That's it. It's a it's an economic thing. Almonds are a very valuable crop. They provide a lot of money to the farm community. They're exported all over the world. California is the prime source of almonds for the entire world. What do you do about that? That's high value stuff that brings in a lot of money, unlike some of the uh, row crops. And it's it's a it's an evolutionary thing that's going on right now. And the whole nature of farming in California is going to be changing dramatically over the next couple of decades, as it has in the past. It changed a lot from when it was basically wheat back in the 19th century. So it's one of the, but it's gonna be painful and there's land that's gonna go fallow. And should the state buy up that land? Should the state be paying the farmers to fallow their land? Should the federal government be paying the farmers to fallow their land? Uh, it's all up in the air right now. Yeah, well, you know, climate change is gonna have a big impact on all this. And the question is, is that gonna be the impetus that creates the political will to solve California's seemingly intractable water problem? We'll have that conversation in a moment. Welcome back. This is Mark Kepler with the Matt Institute. We're talking with Dan Walters, longtime columnist and observer of California politics about water politics. Uh, you've written that one of your chief concerns is the absence of strong leadership when it comes to California water policy. Um, so who should be leading here? The governor, the legislature, you know, the regulatory agencies, the courts, academia, all of the above? Well, it's probably all of the above, but I think the governor plays a particularly central role in the water issue. I mean, to, to resolve California's water conflicts is going to take some legislation, some law changes. It might even include 
doing away with water rights or changing water rights. It hap that happened in Australia, by the way. Uh, so yeah, the governor pays, plays the role. And, but it's difficult because water policy is glacial. It, it takes years, decades, to make a significant change in water policy in California. But governors come and go every maybe every eight years. So just as when one guy goes out, then the next guy comes in and you know and changes the whole thing over. I mean, look, that's why the Delta Conveyance has had so many names over the years. Every right. governor comes in, changes the project, and changes the and, name. And, and some governors change it twice, right? Governor Brown, he changed it, you know, from the peripheral canal to the Twin Tunnels uh, project, and in his two uh, iterations as governor. Uh, the big fix. The big fix. That's right. That's right. Um, so depending, depending on whatever, whoever leads uh, this issue, um, we're going to have to increase the political will uh, to to deal with the water crisis. But we're talking about things like a number of things, you know, conservation, conveyance, storage, pricing. You know, how do we increase the civic awareness on this issue? As long as you turn on the tap and water comes out to the average Californian, that's that's it. That's, it begins and ends with that. Again, the basic conflicts over water don't have anything to do with the water and the tap. I think officialdom makes too much of that. They say, you got to take shorter showers, you got to do this, get, and makes people thinking that that's the water issue, that that's not the water issue. The water issue is how much goes downstream for habitat and how much the farmers can put in their fields. And it's a very complex issue involving countless numbers of stakeholders, each with a different take on the subject, and only the governor has the position to knock heads, bring them in, and, and try to make some hard decisions over who's going to get the water and who's not going to get the water. But one of the things you're talking about, though, is, is water rights, right? And water rights are tied to land rights. Um, you know, you're talking about potentially a fundamental rewriting of water rights. Is that even possible or is it practical? It was done in Australia. They had exactly the same problem we have, and they did it in Australia. And uh, yeah, it's possible. In fact, a lot of the environmental groups are telling the, are saying you've got to do something about water rights. A very similar situation is developing on the Colorado River that feeds water into Southern California. It's virtually the same fight over how much water is going to be going here and how, and whose rights dominate the, the discussion. So it's, it's, it's central to the whole thing. You probably cannot rationalize water policy in California without doing something about water rights, buying up water rights, paying people for their water rights, something. Uh, because it's the, it's right in the middle of the entire uh, issue of water and rights. One of, the, one of the things that, that environmentalists point to is the state constitution, because it talks about the primacy of the, of the public interest um, when it comes to, to, to water issues. And so they're saying that should compel reduced water flow uh, to preserve, you know, wildlife, et cetera. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of political and legal issues around this. But let me ask you this: We've got about a minute left, but I want to ask you this. Um, so, you've looked at the water crisis over a number of years. Do you see this today, currently, and going forward? Is the glass half full or the glass half empty? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Well, you have to be an optimist because sooner or later, Mother Nature will force you to deal with it. So, at some point. Not this year, not next year, maybe not even this decade. At some point, California is going to have to confront its water dilemma because Mother Nature is going to force it, just as it's forcing the issue right now on the Colorado River. And it's going to force it for the rest of California as well. 
simply because there's not going to be enough water to go around. Yeah, Mother Nature is going to force the issue, force conclusion. That's probably a good way to think about it. She, she always wins. I want to thank a longtime political columnist, Dan Walters, for joining us. If you want to stay current with state and local politics, you can sign up for the Maddie Daily, our e-news aggregator, but just log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening to this program. A functioning democracy requires a well-informed electorate. Indeed, there's nothing more important. And by taking the time to become better informed, you're not only supporting fact-based decision-making, but you're doing your part to strengthen our democracy. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson once wisely noted that the best defense of democracy is an informed electorate. So thank you for being an engaged citizen and helping make the San Joaquin Valley and California better and our nation a more perfect union. Now, back to the program. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. Dan Walters is certainly correct. We really don't have an option. We've got to figure out a way to solve our water challenges. One of the deep thinkers on this issue, no pun intended, is our next guest, Ellen Hannock who's with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California, and she's a well-respected expert on California water issues. What are some of the challenges she sees, and more importantly, what are some of the possible solutions she thinks we ought to consider to ensure that we manage our water in a way that is sustainable so that every California has access to sufficient water that is both safe and reliable? That conversation in a moment. You know, for most of us, uh, safe, reliable, and plentiful drinking water has always been a given. Recent droughts have taught us, however, that all the water we want and need may not be a given, at least no longer. With the unrelenting effects of climate change, we've already begun to see a change in the rules of the game when it comes to water. The question is whether we can act quickly enough to adapt to these disruptive changes that are already in motion and are likely to actually accelerate. Our guest is Ellen Hannock. She's one of the state's leading authorities on water and the director of the Water Policy Center at the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Great to be here. Hi, Mark. So let, let's start with the basics, Ellen. Um, on average, how much water do we have and how much water do we use? Oh, um, big numbers. California is a big state. And, you know, in a typical year, we use, I want to say, you know, 38 to, to 40 million acre feet of water. Um, and that is an acre foot is a foot uh, across an acre. So filling up a, a basically a football field a foot, a foot deep, multiply that by about 40 million. A lot of that water is used in agriculture for irrigation. California has a very big uh, agricultural sector, largest ag state in the nation. And then about, about a fifth of that water is used by communities, by in, in cities and suburbs and small, small communities. And so then of course, there's water for the for the ecosystem, which is on top of that. Right, but the, the supply of water, does it match the demand for water in the state? So, you know, in a drought like we're in now, um, I, I would say definitely not. And you're seeing in particular growers are being severely cut back um, on their on their water deliveries. And urban communities also are are facing cutbacks in surface water availability, they often have better plans in place. They have local storage and whatnot to kind of get through it. Yeah. Um, and then smaller communities are starting to see wells go dry. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just wondering, you know, climate change, it, it seems to have changed the calculus uh, when it comes to water. You know, how much have they, has the climate change impacted California's water supply? Um, and are we experiencing, is this going to become a new normal? So, you know, climate change is here when it comes to our, our water system. And um, the kind of really impactful way that you see this is in the rising temperatures and how that's changing snowpack, um, which our, our system, our water system was built around the fact that we have these mountains in the Sierra um, that, you know, could typically, even in dry years, we would have some snow that would kind of serve as, as free seasonal storage because it would, it would, you know, arrive in the winter and, and early spring and then it would slowly melt just kind of get into the reservoirs just around the time when our irrigation and our summer, our summer, you know, sort of higher water demands started. And that was about a third of all the, the water used in a, in a typical year was from the snowpack. And that yeah. is disappearing. You know, now what about wildfires? I and mean, we are seeing these severe wildfires that are occurring as a result of, of climate change. What impact is that having on the supply of water? So that is, is more a, a kind of a, a, a looming threat around water quality, I would say, especially, you know, there are debates about the role of the forests and, um, you know, kind of our headwater areas in terms of whether you can change the amount of supply by managing those forests differently. And, you know, there's there's probably some possibility for, for, for doing that, but the big threat is really on the water quality side. So what about federal and state funding? You think it's adequately addressing the water storage needs in light of climate change? Are, are we getting enough funding to, to deal with that problem? So we are getting way more funding from the federal government for water um, since the passage of the, the big infrastructure bill um, back in the, in the late fall than we normally do. I, I, I've seen estimates suggesting, you know, for, for safe drinking water in particular, that that's going to increase resources from the federal government by, you know, multiple fold for the next five years or so. Um, the state also has, you know, one, one, of the, one of the sort of lucky things, it, given all that we've been dealing with in California and in, in, in the world with the pandemic and the recession and everything, the state is flush. Um, and so um, they've been able for to- For now. <laughs> for now, for now. But, you know, both last year and it looks like this year as well, the, there's some extra money that's going to be available. And a lot of that's going to infrastructure. Including, including in the water sector. So that's that's a good thing. Yeah, well up next, we're gonna talk about pumping water. That's always seen, been seen as the fallback in times of drought. We're now finding that over-reliance on this fallback is actually has a number of drawbacks. That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Um, you know, underground water basins provide nearly 40% of the water used by California farms and cities. That significantly increases during drought years when farmers pump more groundwater to make up shortages from their uh, surface water uh, deliveries. As a result, there's some, been some damage to the aquifer. Uh, the question is, do we need a sustainable groundwater management approach to deal with that problem? Our guest is Ellen Haddock, a water policy expert with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. You know, first of all, what are the problems associated with um, groundwater overpumping? There are a bunch of problems, um, and these have especially been uh, evident in places like the San Joaquin Valley, um, where you are, Mark. Um, so one of them is that you know it lowers the 
the level of groundwater and that causes wells to go dry that we've seen a lot of the shallower wells both drinking water wells but also some some ag wells going dry as a result of this it also causes the ground to sink in some places and we've seen you know in the in the san joaquin valley there are places where there's just been many feet of land sinking um, and that causes all kinds of issues including damage to roads bridges canals so it even hurts the water system um, and then there can also be impacts on water quality. There can be impacts to ecosystems, to rivers um, in certain places. So it's it's not a good thing. Yeah, it, it's amazing that the, that the ground actually sinks. Um, and then they've had that along the canal with the Fine Current Canal. They've had to repair it because it's actually collapsed. And so now they can't even convey the water. So as I've noted, you know, groundwater use is really important to farmers, particularly during uh, times of drought years. And we've had experiencing a few of those right now, in fact. Uh, the question is, um, is the groundwater law that that, the, that was set up by California, which says that, that these groundwater basins have to come into balance by 2040, um, is it a situation of too little too late? Um, do we need a, a faster approach to deal with the, a prob the problems uh, that are being caused by climate change? Well, so there's been a lot of discussion about this lately because we are in the third year of a drought now and that you know tends to increase the, the the pressure to pump more water because there's less surface water av available and there's also less for replenishing you know less less precipitation for replenishing the aquifers so it's kind of accelerating the the pressure on folks to to implement um, what I've you know said in in policy circles including you know in in legislative testimony is that my sense is that the, the law itself kind of already has the what we need in terms of mechanisms for encouraging folks to to get this right because what it, it it allows people 20 years to get to full sustainability but it also kind of has some guardrails along the way so that you can you can't be causing significant undesirable results like causing people's drinking water uh, sources to uh, to to dry up so what you're seeing is basically an acceleration now of folks putting in place demand management, pumping restrictions and so on. Yeah, um, I'm just wondering, um, what should California do to prevent the groundwater situation from reaching a point of no return though? I mean, the, the question is, is 2040 too long a timeline? And just as a footnote, it was amazing to me is California is behind Texas in this area. Texas was, was regulating groundwater well before California. so. We're late to the party. We are late to the party in terms of having a statewide rule uh, and legislation about this, but arguably our law is more comprehensive and also really, you know, is one of the few, I mean, Texas is like us in that way of really giving a lot of the responsibility to the locals to figure out what's going to work best at the local level. Um, in California, there's a backstop which is that if your plan is not gonna, gonna cut it, then the state can come in and, and require you to do some additional things. And there are a lot of the basins in the, in the San Joaquin Valley right now that are in that position of having to kind of, you know, send their plans back with some revisions um, pretty, uh, by the summer in order to not have that happen. Let, let me transition a little bit. It's a related issue that's contaminated um, domestic wells, particularly in low income communities. What can you tell us about the status of, of drinking water quality and affordability in California? So, you know, I, I first I'll say most Californians have safe water coming out of the tap, um, you know, the vast majority. Um, but we do have, you know, we have a lot of water systems. We have over 3,000. And 
there are in any given month there are a few hundred that are not meeting water quality standards and um, those tend to be very very small systems we have you know our small communities are often far flung and and um, not you know not connected to to larger systems and those are more expensive to to, to manage in terms of addressing a, a water quality problem because you don't have what we call economies of scale, you know, where you can spread those costs of say water treatment across a lot of households. And those are also often low income communities. So the combination of high costs per household and, and low incomes means that they really need help um, financially and often techni technically and managerially in solving right, this. Right, right. They may not have the technical expertise to deal with it. Um, we've only got 30 right. seconds left in this segment, but I want to ask you, what do you see as the priority steps to ensure safe and, and affordable drinking water for all Californians? So I think, you know, we're, we're in a good place right now. There's been a lot of, um, lot of work to get legislation, to get funding in place. And we are now at a point where I would say funding is not the constraint. It's just the detailed technical work of getting these solutions in on the ground, and there are a lot of folks working on this. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, well. Up next, um, what do water specialists? Why do they believe that nurturing and protecting California's ecosystems is essential to the state's water supply? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Ellen Hannock, who's a senior fellow and director of the nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California's Water Policy Center, about a recent report she co-authored on California's water priorities. So I want to turn our attention to this freshwater ecosystems that you have a whole chapter on um, in your report. Why is that important? California is a biodiversity hub. Um, we have, you know, an incredible number of really, you know, amazing species, fish, fish, other aquatic species. We are a major part of the Pacific Flyway for waterfowl. You know, terrestrial species and our freshwater species are are in big trouble because of changes to our water system so it's important to think about that as part of managing water is that kind of i've heard them you know the famous delta smelt um has been referred to kind of as the canary in the coal mines when it comes to water quality in the delta uh, is that a fair statement you know I mean, people in the valley talk a lot about the delta smelt because it's one of the fish that is um, kind of on that on that list on the endangered species list, and so management of water in the delta is partly done to try to mitigate harm to that that species. But it, you know, you've got salmon, you've got steelhead, you know, there's so there it's it, there are there's not just one species. There there's like a whole slew of them. Right. And, right. That's, that's become the poster, frankly, that's become the poster child for, for, for water issues. You always hear about the, the Delta smelt, and you're right that there's so many other species that are also being impacted. But let me ask you this. So what are you suggesting the state do um, to maintain the natural infrastructure in light of climate change? So, you know, we've been trying to do a lot in California um, to, to kind of restore the health of our, our native and freshwater species, really since, I would say, especially since the early 90s. And um, part of that is, you know, making making more water available at certain times. Part of it is, you know, restricting how other folks use water. Part of it is restoration. But we haven't been doing enough fast enough. And what we're suggesting is really kind of a shift in approach toward thinking about the ecosystem as a whole rather than managing for specific species, looking for, you know, ecosystem health, and what a, a concept called functional flows. Where I was going to ask you about that because I, this, could you explain that? 
Yeah, so the idea is that you're, you know, you're not going to restore the the fully, you know, pre-development ecosystem. We've, you know, changed ch changed things radically, but what you can do is kind of make water available, kind of mimicking the the patterns of the natural stream flow and, you know, making more water available pulse, pulse flows in the spring to kind of help the salmon move. Um, certain times of the year you want to have, you know, um, make sure you, you're having the, the right temperatures in the water and so on, but really thinking about this in a strategic way rather than kind of a minimum flow approach, more of a, you know, flexible management to, to make the water most useful. Well, let me ask you about another term that I saw in your report, and that was headwater forests. Uh, I'm sure there's a simple explanation, but what, what are they and why are they important to California's water supply? So headwater forests, you know, California is a big forest state. Um, and, uh, you know, as we all know, you know, our, 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 the Sierra Nevada, the Cascades to the north, um, big mountains with a lot, of, a lot of trees. And those are also the places that are the, the headwaters, the origin of a lot of our, our, our water. That's where a lot of our rivers start. And that's the source of a lot of our water supply. And those forests have gotten very unhealthy over decades. Um, we've had a fire suppression policy in place for a long, long time, which has meant that those trees have gotten, the, the forests are very dense now, and they're kind of tinderboxes now, especially with the rising temperatures. So we've all seen and experienced the wildfires, terrible wildfires that we've had in, in the past decade, in recent years. And you know, that's not good for our water. That's not good for water quality in the system. It's obviously not good for air quality. And we've got to do something to get those forests back into healthier shape. Yeah, and I think one of the things you're talking about is is uh, better stewardship, right? I mean, the, the, the plan had always been fire suppression, but now they're realizing, well, maybe controlled burns make more sense. And you also talk in your report about uh, providing some support for infrastructure, for like sawmills and biomass. Um, and train people to you know woodworking, uh, using wood, um, all the kinds of things that kind of address the health health of our forests. Correct, because we you want to be able to do this in a way that also brings some value to the communities that live the, in these areas, right? Right. So right. Creating, creating jobs as well as you know finding ways to kind of get those forests to be thinner and use some of that wood productively. Okay. Well, up next. How do we ensure that that California is actually climate ready? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie report. Do you want the Valley's future political leaders to be civil, fact-based, bipartisan problem solvers? Consider supporting the Maddie Legislative Intern Scholar Program that provides Valley students with the opportunity to develop public leadership skills while gaining practical knowledge of the day-to-day -day operations of government and the political process. To learn more, log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking uh, about the state's water priorities with Ellen Hannock, who is a water policy expert with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. You know, your report uh, makes it clear that you believe uh, you think you you believe we have to think differently about how we manage the risk posed by climate change when it comes to water. And you've written that, quote, we've passed an, a climate inflection point, unquote, and we need to move from planning for climate change to actually taking action for the impacts that are already occurring. Um, one suggestion you have is for the state to become more climate ready is to improve water storage and conveyance. What specifically are you suggesting? So the key thing is recognizing that a major part of our storage, which is snowpack, is disappearing. And so we've got to find ways to make up for that. And, and thinking about that is really both, you know, looking at where the smart plays are in terms of increasing sur surface storage, 
but there aren't going to be a lot of those because we built it in already in most of the good places. So it's it's especially leveraging the capacity we've got in our underground aquifers to get more water in there and then you know have the conveyance that can move the water between the surface and the groundwater basin so that we can really optimize that as a as a system. Yeah, I mean you, you hear a lot about sites, uh, reservoir and temperance flat. Um, but the question I think for me is what's the most cost effective way to capture the water that we, we do have? And, and it seems like underground storage is a pretty cost effective way to do that um, from a non-water expert uh, as an outsider. What about uh, updating water infrastructure? I mean, and I guess that would in term canals and whatnot, and using technology as a way to improve the efficiency and effectiveness is how we use water in California. Right. So, you know, technology is going to be really helpful to us. And there have been some some major advances and we're already kind of, you know, taking some taking some some steps in that direction. And we and proof of concept shows we can do more on this. One of them is something called forecast informed reservoir operations, FIRO. And that is where using kind of advanced um, weather forecasting about 10 days out, you can determine is a, is a big storm likely to hit your reservoir or not. If it's not likely to hit, you don't necessarily have to release that water in anticipation of that storm. And that allows you to manage flood risk at the same time keeping some of that valuable water in the reservoir. So that's, that's, that's going to be a big one. You know, there's also the issue of just re repairing conveyances. We talked earlier about you know the Frank Kern Canal that it's sinking because it subsides, and they're losing that it's not as efficient in moving the water. So we've got to repair the infrastructure as well. Yeah, and you know, luckily that one is underway now. The ground has been broken. Funding was kind of cobbled together to do that. So, but there are some other places where we're going to have to also do some fixes on conveyance, and there's probably some new conveyance that's going to be important. We think that probably up. You know, something like down in Kern, there's something called the Cross Valley Canal that connects the east and the west side. Something further north in the valley would, would also be useful like that. Okay. Uh, one of the key points in your report was that, quote, we cannot simply build our way out of water scarcity. In short, reducing the demand of water is essential. And this becomes kind of a third rail when it comes to water. You say that inevitably, inevitably means uh, following farmland. So how do you ensure that that won't devastate the valley farm economies? No, and th this is this is a hard one. And I would say even if the climate weren't changing, there would be a need to do that because we've been mining our groundwater basins. And just to kind of have the to 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 have water for the long term and to keep our groundwater basins healthy for the long term, we would need to be managing demand. We estimate that in the San Joaquin Valley, somewhere between between 10 and 20 percent of the irrigated acreage is going to have to come out of intensive irrigation. Um, there are ways to manage that in that won't devastate the economy, but that's going to require some coordinated action and effort to, you know, put put other good things on that land, basically. Well, yeah, I've heard that, that if the number is anywhere from half a million to a million acres of, of, of land potentially being fallow. Let me ask you, all of this is going to cost money. Where's the money going to come from? Well, you know, I, a, a lucky thing is that right now we've got we've got the ability to make some down payment on this with some you know, extra state funding that's available. The state's budget has been flush over the last couple of years, um, and they're definitely putting money into into water infrastructure. The federal government has provided a boost of, of, of funding, but we're, you know, that's not that's a down payment. So we're going to have to be thinking about ways to bring in additional federal and state money, and also, you know, smart ways for water users to also contribute to to this. And that's why picking the most cost-effective solutions really makes sense. You want those dollars to to go as far as they can. Well, one of the things I found in your report I thought was really great, a good summary, and it was, 
we need to take risks to reduce risks. And I think that really does summarize the situation. I want to thank our, our guest, Alan Hannock, the director of the Water Policy Center at the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. Uh, if you want to stay current on state and local politics, you can sign up for our daily e-newsletter, uh, The Maddie Daily, by just logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.com. This is Mark Kepler for The Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. The Maddie Institute has become one of the most active public policy institutes in California because of support of people like you. Because of that support, the Maddie Institute has highlighted San Joaquin Valley issues that are often overlooked by those in Sacramento and Washington. If you want the Valley to have a strong voice, and you believe in a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to politics and public policy, please consider joining us as a Maddie Associate. You can learn more at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Institute is your public affairs institute. We are an alliance of the Valley's four public universities, Fresno State, California State University Bakersfield, Stanislaus State, and UC Merced that have joined forces to better serve the residents of the San Joaquin Valley. Our goal is to support a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to the public policy challenges we face as a region, state, and nation. You can learn more about the activities of the Maddie Institute by logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.com. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.